Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Elveson with the Digital Education Podcast. I've taken a little bit of time off, um, I think July and August, so we're starting up again in September as the school year starts up. Um, have had some really interesting days and some really interesting times, but to start us up again is, is really, like, I think probably the person I've had on the podcast most, partly because he's a my closest friend, and then somebody who tolerates me. But I'm with John Eckert, and I'm not going to give a lot of introductions and all that kind of stuff. But John, you've done some research, you've done some work, you've you've written a book, Leading Together. Now you're you know you're a chair at Baylor in education on school leadership, right? So y- your life now is school leadership in a lot of ways. But yet, was that ever the plan, and where did that interest come from? Yeah, Eric, it's always great to talk to you, and thanks for having me on again. I feel like that's distinguished status to be the most frequent uh, podcast participant for digital education, so I appreciate what you do. Um, I, you know, this goes back 25 years, really, and, and our conversations about this started 20 years ago. We, we realized there were certain kinds of schools that we wanted to work in, and there were certain kinds of ways we wanted leadership to happen. And you had the opportunity to jump into some of those positions in public schools and in uh, private Christian schools. And uh, we both went off to study uh, school leadership. You were at Boston and I was at Vanderbilt. And so we just kept those conversations going. And uh, the further I dug into it, the more you realize that the necessary conditions for school leadership to happen require catalysts. Uh, to make those conditions possible. And so as, as a former science teacher, uh, you know, uh, I know this, and we've talked a lot about this, that a catalyst is uh, not the focus of a reaction. It merely accelerates it. And so what you want are leaders that accelerate the good work that's going on in schools and just get more of it. The people that walk alongside the leaders, whatever role they're in, uh, the ones that are making a difference for students. So you talk about efficiency, you know, and effectiveness in school leadership. Um, what, like, for that catalyst, what, like, what's, like, in the construct, the construct come first or the research come first? And, and then in this, like, you know, consistently, I know one of the frustrations is people build constructs or they never research it or they do the research, build the construct, but never do the follow-up. Like, how does this work in understanding what, collective leadership is as a catalyst for that big change in education? Yeah, so it's hard. To, it, the, I, w- I would say this, for the book, the, the research came first. I spent a couple years with Mark Smiley, who's Professor Emeritus at University of Illinois Chicago, huge school leadership guy, uh, really lived and did great theoretical work. And so he was really helpful for grounding the work in the research on work redesign, uh, leadership development, and teacher leadership. So we use those three bodies of literature and we came up with this model that has seven conditions. This is the one drawback to podcast, you can't see it. So I'm not gonna talk you through all seven conditions and just imagine that you can visualize it. But those conditions really though came out of my experience in schools and seeing what conditions were necessary to accelerate leadership. So it's hard to say that the the research came first because I came to that research, I guess, uh, about 17 years into my work in education. And that involved 12 years in schools outside Chicago and Nashville, and then work at the U.S. Department of Ed, and then work in higher ed preparing teachers. So 
all of that is a filter for everything that I did. So the research became the theoretical basis upon which to build on the practical experiences that you and I have experienced in schools for years. And then we then, then I went out and looked to find schools that were outliers, schools where good things were happening. So almost all my work now is looking at uh, schools where they've found some success and then tried to general, I try to generalize across them what are those conditions that will make other schools ready for that success and then able to track that success. So as we look at networked improvement communities, how do we look at data that tells us we're making progress or we're not in this really clear-eyed way that schools sometimes don't do because they just don't wanna be honest with where they're at because it's too painful to be honest or they don't have time or they're overwhelmed or a pandemic <laughs> sweeps across the world and makes it so we're in survival mode all the time and then we're victim to the tyranny of the urgent. And so I would say my practical experience informed the research which then gave me a lens to go out and find places that are doing good work. So I don't have to go out and say, hey, this is what I did. You should all do this with your schools. It's what are good schools doing and how do we get more good schools working together for those shared goals that improve student outcomes? All right. So this kind of gets into that question, right? Because in the book, you talk about, like, I, I found it really interesting. You, you come with a little bit of a disdain for transformative leadership, not disdain or, you know, just a dislike for it maybe would be a better term. But, but we consistently in education have looked for, you know, the silver bullet solution to our problems. What's the program? How are we going to do it? Silver bullet or the superhero approach to leadership where it's like, you know, this person is going to lead us to the promised land and, and guide us in all these types of ways. So what are like in collective leadership being antithetical to that approach? Like, are you seeing certain things from these outliers that, that would kind of say, hey, here, here's some commonalities? Sure. So, you know, I, I really just take issue with the amount of times transformation gets used and it gets used so often it becomes cheap. And you know me with words that get overly um, hackneyed. I just kind of like it. They lose their meaning. So what does transformation really mean? And so for a school to be successful, they need to be creating good outcomes for all students. And so in order to do that, you need the collective leadership of a community to do that. So it starts with teachers and administrators. It extends to students and community members in ways that change what they're doing. So I'll give you one example, the urban school that I highlighted in the book, they had been recognized nationally for positive behavior intervention supports as a model program. And this is a school that had all kinds of school violence going on. They had fights going on at lunch almost every day. And they had made some huge progress, not because some transformational leader got out in front and said, this is what we should do, follow me. They hired an elementary school principal that is super mild-mannered, knew everybody in the school, talked quietly always in the hallway, but commanded respect, but none of it was about him. So when I sat in on one of the PBIS meetings, it involved students, parents, was run by a teacher, and he was there. 
merely as a support. And they were strategizing how to further reduce office referrals, what kinds of positive incentives could be put in place. And they had an hour long meeting where the principal said almost nothing. He just offered his support with his presence and what kind of resources he could bring to bear. And so that's where I think transformation actually happens, but it's not some magic bullet solution. They're still dealing with too many office referrals. They're still trying to figure out ways to do that. So, and I don't also don't want to say it's just incremental. I think you hit a point where all of a sudden you're in a school where it's tipped where now you have this positive momentum that it looks like a fundamentally different school than it was five years before, but it's not done by a magic bullet solution that someone comes in from the outside and said, here's how it goes. Because I just don't see that. In my experience is that does not work very often. And even when it does, it's very hard to sustain. So then let me ask, let me ask this question. If, if I'm a leader, right, you, we're so often in our leadership programs and our leadership developmental programs taught to be visionary, right? You got to be a visionary leader. You got to be a transformational leader. You got to be, you got to be this, this, this. And it, it is very much of, I, I don't want to simplify it, right? But, it, you know, I, I think of like football coaches all the time, right? You know, this really strong almost somewhat dictatorial personality and what you're giving a picture of in that urban context with that leader is, is someone that's just the opposite of that. So if I'm a leader and I'm preparing to be a leader, like what, what would be some of the suggestions you would have for me based on our modern context of leadership? Well, I think particularly working with millennials and now Gen Z people, you probably need to think more like an NBA coach than you do a football coach. Uh, so if you want to use the coaching metaphor, the NBA coach, nobody that's successful, you know, Greg Popovich is not successful in San Antonio because he yells and screams and tries to get everybody onto his page. Uh, you know, the great coaches and coach Krzyzewski, let's use college basketball. He's completely changed the way he recruits and what he does to meet the needs of his players and build teams that are built around the talents that he has so that they can meet the shared goal of being successful. And that includes for athletes now in college, getting to the NBA, that includes winning national championships and being successful in conference. But when you get to the NBA, you're managing personalities. You're putting people in places to be successful. When you hear the coaches talk, if you hear Brad Stevens talk for the Celtics, he's constantly talking about where he, how he puts players in position to be successful. And his players love him, not because he's some charismatic leader, but because he cares about them and he puts them in positions to be successful. And so I think that's the way if you want to keep calling them transformational leaders, I think that's the way we do it. And that lends itself really nicely to collective leadership, which I think is very appealing to students and millennials and Gen Z because they're ready to contribute ideas. It's just how do we harness those, get those all going in the same direction. That takes a lot of leadership skill. It's, I will give you one other analogy. Um, in teaching, whenever I'm least prepared, I lecture. Uh, when I am most prepared and I'm going to have the most successful class, 
everyone's engaged. It's full blown. We're, we're working together and we're moving together, but that takes a high level of preparation. So it's not that transformational leader that wants to get up and pontificate. Uh, you, you can do that fairly easily if you can string a few sentences together, but it's not going to get you very far. And so to me, that transformational leader is someone that demonstrates the transformation in the way others lead, not in their own leadership. So, and, and I know like a lot of your, you know, your research and a lot of this work has been done with public schools, which are the majority of schools in the United States. But yet you've recently, you know, over the last couple of years worked with, you know, private schools, independent schools, Christian schools, you know, how is how is the construct or how in your own mind have you adjusted the construct of collective leadership to 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 meet like the unique demands of public versus private you know the different sorts of schools and communities and market demands that they're under yeah that's a great question and the, the great thing about the collective leadership model is that it's all contextual so i love being in as many different kinds of schools as i can because that collective leadership model plays out differently because necessarily because the context is different and so there are uh certainly uh, additional advantages to being say a charter school or a private Christian school over being a traditional public school and there are challenges that come with that. Uh, you answer to different kinds of people when you're tuition driven you have uh, you are more um, client focused than you are when you're funded by tax dollars that's just the, that's just the way it is and so that that gives you opportunities and challenges and I think uh, COVID has laid that out there. One of the things I've loved with working with the private Christian schools right now is they've had to be super nimble in the way they meet the needs of their families, of their students, so that they can create a value proposition that says, hey, this is where you want your kid to be. Finances may be challenging. These other things may be shifting. We may not know what, what it is, but what they've been able to provide is a stable learning environment that students are feeling safe and cared for and known in a way that has required the collective leadership of people. Anybody trying to lead by themselves through COVID has probably already retired or ripped all their hair out. Uh, so I, I, I think right now we're leading collectively out of necessity. Now, that said, that doesn't mean all the leadership's been great. When you're victim to the tyranny of the urgent, whether you're doing that on your own or with a group, you still make some decisions that you might regret later because you had to make them quickly with bad data. Um, so I, again, collective leadership is not a silver bullet. It's merely a, an ability to lead with the collective expertise of as many people as possible, which should minimize some of the mistakes you would make and then maximize the opportunities that your organization has because you have that expertise there and everybody owns the work when they've been invested in the problem solving and where we're going to go. And I think uh, the pandemic has created opportunities to look at that in, in a lot of different ways. And at Baylor, since we've been able to work with thousands of teachers and administrators this last summer, we've been able to collect some really good information on how that's worked and tried to disseminate that out. Not because we at Baylor have some brilliant ideas, but when you see enough good work happening, you just spread that expertise to others. So I see that as my role in my writing and the way I facilitate. So hopefully I practice what I preach. I don't come across as the guy with all the answers, but I come across as the guy who has some ideas from others that could maybe improve where you're at. 
I appreciate you thinking about that. And it, it is a really interesting way to think about leadership as being, you know, going back to that, that kind of the first part of the conversation of being the catalyst. So, so John, is, is if I'm thinking about my context, you know, of where my school is and what my school is, and I'm in leadership, um, and I think about our context of life right now, and then if I'm reading the book and thinking about collective leadership and how do I do this together and with others and, you know, all these types of things, what might be a question that you would encourage people to think through as they, re- as they, they reflect on our, their current situation in our current times w- with kind of this understanding of, you know, we can do this together better? Yeah, so... I like to take things out of the abstract into the practical. And so my, my question, which I know is a similar question you ask all the time is who do I need? <laughs> like, and so, and it really is broad, broader than that. It's really, who do we need? And so sometimes you have all the expertise you need in your school building, but I've found some schools can be a little insulated. I think especially if you're at a, a private school where you have, you've had to spin that this is a different value proposition than anything else. And our context is different than the public school down the street or the charter school or the other uh, Christian school or the, the, um, you know, Jewish day school down the street, whatever your comparison group is, we start to think that that's only there. But I think the who do we need is a much broader question. Like who are the heads of school we need to know? Who are the college counselors we need to know? Who are the uh, the division heads we need to know? Who are the public school people we need to know? Who are the innovative um, charter school people we need to know? Who are the other Christian leaders in whatever context they're in that we need to know. What can we learn from business? What can we learn from psychology? How do you start pooling? And we talk about this a lot in the Novice Advantage book, which was the precursor to leading together. Who do you need in your personal learning network? I think a school needs to think about that is who do you need in your school learning network? And so that involves students, that involves parents, that involves, but how do you bring that in? And I, and I have to say, given where we're at, how do you do that efficiently? And so you need to find the people you trust that can distill ideas quickly because we don't have time to have long deliberative conversations because that's too slow right now. So how do you get the data you need in, the people you need? And so that's really going to be the people that are walking alongside you all the time. So certainly the people in your school, but who are those band of brothers and sisters. And again, if we're Christians, that should make things easier because our bonds should be tighter more quickly because we have a shared value set where we believe that there is truth and that can be pursued, um, that that can hopefully push us in the right direction. But I guess if I had to say one question, it's who do we need uh, would be the question I think I would be asking. Thanks, John. You're welcome. Always good to be with you, Eric.